the same religion that's capable of hideous acts of destruction can also be capable of moments of healing, of restoration, and of hope. But educate a girl, and you educate her entire family. There is a sun within every person. When that anger sets in, write it. Write the letters, but don't send them. You never want to leave concrete proof of insanity. said I'm a teacher teachers give exams and quizzes and stuff like that so here's a quiz contemplate the Middle East and think about the three things that come to mind immediately as you contemplate that region of the world I, I'm remiss. I didn't pass out blue books so that you could actually respond. But if, if I had, my sense is that the very first thing you'd write down is conflict. Unremitting, continuous military and paramilitary conflict. And the next thing you might write is uh, pain, suffering, Devastation, destruction, and the third category might be demand for retribution. Got to get even, so as to begin that cycle all over again. And most conferences that I have attended focusing on the Middle East will touch on those three things. This one won't. When we met, oh, lo these many moons ago, to decide about a topic, we were very specific that we did not want to look at those three significant, though they are, things, because they prompt us to look backward. Our title, Palestine and Israel, the first part of the title locates us, tells us what we're going to talk about in terms of the geography. But a search for common ground that really says what we're about. That's our mission. We're here in search of common ground because the implication, the implication of that search is that there is a tomorrow and that the tomorrow can be a whole lot better than yesterday if we succeed in our search. And it is in that endeavor that we invite you to participate. We have a stellar panel, which I will not take a lot of time to introduce because the introductions are already contained in, in this little pamphlet. And if you did not get a pamphlet, uh, we will make sure that you get one. 
There is, by the way, also a, a pamphlet, a booklet by our keynote speaker that is uh, free of charge. And, and when you maybe when you leave for the uh, for the break, uh, and I'll hasten to add, it's a 10-minute break, not a 20-minute break. Then you might want to pick up a copy. It is fully complimentary. Uh, I have a timer sitting over here. It's my ancient Korean temple bell, and it uh, it makes a joyful noise when our speakers are out of time. I've used it many times. But generally speaking, all I have to do is make a movement with my right arm, and people get the idea. Our keynote speaker is Afif Safei. He represents the Palestinian Authority in Washington, D.C. He is first to speak. He is our keynoter, and I will introduce our panelists after he has completed his remarks. Would you please help me welcome our keynote speaker, Afif Sakhir. Ladies and gentlemen, my wife and I are extremely delighted to be with you this afternoon here in Santa Barbara. And I'm really impressed and I feel privileged to be in the presence of a superb choreographer, moderator, and a very distinguished panel. Ladies and gentlemen, when we left London some 17 months ago, there was a joke which was extremely fashionable about the difference between an ambassador and a camel. And the answer was that a camel could work for 10 days without drinking, while an ambassador could drink for 10 days without working. <laughs> Let me set your heart at ease. I am known to be closer to a camel or a moderately drinking camel. Ladies and gentlemen, since we arrived in Washington, I have been on the lecturing circuit constantly. And my message to American public opinion was always that we are not inviting America to sacrifice a traditional friend. We are offering America an additional one. And I would like to have the approach through a triangular approach Palestine, Israel, and the United States of America. But let me first start by telling you that the first country to recognize American independence was not France, who, yes, deployed Lafayette and his contribution on the battlefield was decisive, but it was an Arab country that was the first to recognize American independence, Morocco. And let me tell you something that very few Palestinians now remember, that when in 1919, after the First World War, we, the Palestinians, discovered that we won't be having the independence promised by foreign rule. We, the Palestinians, then would have preferred to have an American mandate rather than a British mandate. And this for three reasons. Bear in mind, by the way, that the British then used to say that they have an empire from where the sun never sets. And you might wonder why, but because apparently God never trusted them in the dark. We Palestinians would have preferred an American mandate for three reasons. One, your anti-colonial experience. Two, President Woodrow Wilson, who went to the Versailles Conference that terminated the First World War, upholding the principle of self-determination, which was music to our ears. And number three, 
The fact-finding mission that Woodrow Wilson sent to Palestine called the King Crane Commission that came back to Washington reported to the administration and to Congress by saying the Balfour Declaration cannot work unless there is massive use of force against the indigenous population. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I told you I'll be having a triangular approach. Let me start with the Palestinian dimension. First of all, we just terminated a 12-month period, which was for us Palestinians extremely difficult, because we had recently a presidential election, then a legislative election, after 12 months, and they were not synchronized, and they gave two different results, two different majorities. The presidential elections, we saw Mahmoud Abbas win very comfortably with 63% in a competitive election, internationally monitored, which was considered to be impeccable and Im immaculate. 12 months later, another majority emerged from the ballot boxes. And we had what the French call la cohabitation, meaning two different poles with two different majorities. By the way, la cohabitation is not something unprecedented. The French have lived la cohabitation several times during the last 20 years. And I believe that today, here in America, you have cohabitation. Since you have a Republican a presidency and administration and a Democratic Congress. For us, it was a painful period because, in a way, we neutralized each other and became increasingly a non-player. Yet, a month ago, we had the Mecca agreements and we agreed on a national coalition government. Let me share with you my analysis of our legislative elections. By the way, I happen to belong to the secular school of thought and I'm known to be from a Christian family, sociologically, I say sociologically because theologically sometimes, Rabbi, I happen to have doubts, but also doubts about my doubts. <laughs> my analysis of the legislative elections which took place in January 2006 is the following. Fateh, the party to which I belong, entered into those elections carrying three burdens, having three handicaps that we knew about. The first handicap was the durability, longevity in power. Fatih was in charge of the national movement since 1968 until 2005. Such durability, such longevity creates the phenomenon of boredom, creates the desire for change, especially that there was no significant change in political personnel. That was factor number one. Factor number two was the reality and the reputation of corruption. The reality was grave, serious, acute. The reputation was even more damaging and more devastating. This also results in the erosion of one's popularity. The third factor, ladies and gentlemen, is rarely spoken about here in American circles because I believe some will be well advised to add and enrich their vocabulary with the word occupation is that Fatih became during the last 20 years identified with, identified with negotiations, peace process, the two-state solution. And for us Palestinians, the theoretical years of peacemaking, we did not witness the withdrawal of occupation, but rather the expansion of occupation, since you probably know that during the years of theoretical peacemaking, the volume, the number of illegal settlements and illegal settlers doubled while we were supposed to be in a peace process exercise. So here again, whoever became identified with negotiations peace process was damaged electorally. But with those three handicaps, all the political science 
scientists were predicting a victory of Fatih that would remain the first party. Yes, shrinking in its parliamentary representation, but everybody was unanimous to say they will remain the first party, maybe not anymore majoritarian, needing coalition partners that existed on the ground. Here comes the fourth factor, ladies and gentlemen, which I call Fatih succeeding in defeating itself, mainly the fact that they had very poor interpersonal relationship, there was at the beginning of the election period two Fatih lists competing against one another. There were attempts to merge the two lists. Uh, they bypassed the legal time. They went to court to obtain an extension. They obtained an extension of a few hours, merged the two lists, choosing the least appetizing candidates, which pushed many hopefuls to run as independents against the official list. I believe that Fatih had not yet then succeeded in learning how to live without Yasser Arafat. Two, Fatih was not very successful in managing the forces of immobilism and the forces of impatience, the generational dimension. And Fatih was never known for its external discipline because mainly it never had a serious internal competitor. But this time there was an internal competitor, which was Hamas. And all those factors combined resulted in an obvious victory of Hamas, not a landslide, 44%, but an obvious victory. I happen to be an old-fashioned Democrat, and I believe that in a democracy, winners and losers have to behave gracefully. And for me, ladies and gentlemen, democracy is made of four ingredients. It's constitutional pluralism, the rule of the majority, the respect for the minority. The last elections are not the last elections. Now, unfortunately, in this country, there was an avalanche of commentators who, for, in my opinion, had not the right analysis. The theme was mainly the election of Hamas is a blow to the peace process. Which peace process? On the contrary, my analysis, and I think it would have been a sounder analysis, is to say that the absence of a credible diplomatic avenue was one of the reasons that brought the victory of Hamas. Number two, ladies and gentlemen, in the study of international relations, there is a school of thought to which I do not fully adhere that says that hawks are better peacemakers. It's only a Nixon could, that could make the overture towards China. It's only a Begin that could conclude peace with Sadat. It's only a Sharon who could withdraw out of Gaza. And I wonder why there was no comment then saying that maybe Hamas would be the most adequate interlocutor to achieve an acceptable binding peace. Anyway, an international quarantine was imposed on the Palestinians. Sanctions were inflicted on us. And I believe we Palestinians, we have had our national dignity wounded by this collective punishment simply because we have exercised our right to vote freely. To tell you frankly, I for one fully support the agreement that was achieved in Mecca that led to the national coalition government. And I believe that the success of our national coalition government is of decisive importance for tomorrow's choices and orientations of political Islam. I believe political Islam is a phenomenon that is here to stay. It has several temptations. The Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, is one of those temptations, but there is that other model, which is the Turkish model, Islam, political Islam, accepting pluralism, elections, democracy. And I believe the success of our coalition government will be of decisive importance for the future orientation of political Islam, not only locally, but globally. What happened in Mecca?
First of all, ladies and gentlemen, I believe in Mecca, Hamas accepted that it's the PLO that negotiates on behalf of the Palestinian people. And as you know, Mahmoud Abbas, the pragmatic leader, is the president of the PLO. Number two, Hamas accepted that in the Palestinian National Authority as a political system, the conduct of foreign policy is the prerogative of the president. Again, the same Mahmoud Abbas, who in my opinion comes out strengthened by this agreement and not weakened. Number three, we agreed on an independent personality, an academic, very distinguished, who would be foreign minister. And this person happens to enjoy, one, the confidence of Hamas on the one side, and is a political friend of Mahmoud Abbas. The proof that tomorrow the presidency and the government will be working in harmony and not on a collision course. Number four, Hamas accepted to honor all previous agreements in the peace process. Five, Hamas accepted to endorse all Arab summit, uh, Arab summit resolutions, including the Saudi peace initiative that be became binding for all the regional state system. And number six, Hamas accepted with us Fatah to offer the Israelis the possibility of a mutual reciprocal ceasefire that would be comprehensive covering both the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. I believe that all those elements are positives for whoever is keen about a successful peace process. Now let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, we the Palestinians believe that we have become the Jews of the Israelis. We the Palestinians have this vision of what has happened. Israel was supposed to be the solution for what was called in Europe the Jewish question. As a result, ladies and gentlemen, today I am the question awaiting still a convenient, equitable answer. And I will not concede from you that the political moral dilemma and challenge in the Middle East is the following. We either have one people too many, this time we the Palestinians, or we have a missing state that needs to be created. I always say to my audiences, history is still undecided, and I invite them usually to help history make the right choice. Now, I never belonged, ladies and gentlemen, to the optimistic school of thought that promises victory and salvation to the oppressed as a sort of predetermined outcome. I don't believe in predetermination, and I believe that history is a cemetery for oppressed people who remained oppressed until they vanished into historical oblivion. Now let me come to the Israeli pole of the dimension. I'll be telegraphic. I still believe, ladies and gentlemen, that the Israeli official policy is still how to acquire as much of Palestinian geography as possible with as little of Palestinian demography as possible. And I believe that uh, Ehud Olmert, during the Knesset parliamentary elections they had in March 2006, he, in a way, promised to accelerate the building of the wall, the infamous wall, the apartheid wall, which swallows 15% of Palestinian territory of the West Bank, but he also unilaterally annexed de facto the Jordan Valley and the shore of the Dead Sea, which is an additional 30% of the West Bank. Now, as you know, we Palestinians, for years, we have been in favor of the two-state solution, and Mr. Choreographer, Mr. Moderator, I always used to say that we, the Palestinians, have become unreasonably reasonable because we were offering our hand in peace, accepting as a historical compromise 22% of what used to be legitimately ours at the beginning of the 20th century. If one has a panoramic look today at Israeli domestic politics,
one will discover that today the major key players in the Israeli coalition are politicians that no more belong to the heroic era of the war of independence. They don't have an impressive CV or pedigree in military security matters. And many explain that the fact that they have this inferiority complex vis-a-vis -vis their inexperience on the military security level was one of the major factors that led to the blunders of the conflagration on the Lebanese theater. As a result of last summer's war on the Lebanese theater, that leadership, meaning Olmert on, from Kadima and Peretz from Labour, they came out shaken and stirred, and today Olmert's popularity ratings are somewhere between 2 and 3% only. Jokingly, I would tell you that probably I am more popular in Israel than Olmert is. <laughs> If one bears in mind that 17 to 20 percent of Israeli society is made of Palestinian Israelis. There are three possible scenarios in Israel. Either Olmert links his political career or what remains of it with the peace process and the hand extended by the Arab summit meeting that reactivated and revitalized the Arab peace plan, or there is going to be a coup d'etat within the Kadima party with Tsipi Livni, the actual foreign minister, who is the most popular politician in Israel, taking over the premiership and keeping the same coalition. Or the third possibility is anticipated elections, and then we might have the comeback kid, Bibi Netanyahu, become again the leading party and the future prime minister. But let me share with you my analysis. I personally believe, ladies and gentlemen, that Unfortunately and clinically, what is acceptable to us Palestinians is unacceptable to the Israelis, and what is acceptable to the Israelis is unacceptable to us. And having been a diplomat for over 35 years, I can tell you that diplomacy is not the art of seduction. It is bound by rapport de force and balances of power. And I believe the major flaw of the previous peace processes was to leave too much to the local belligerent parties, the local negotiating actors, to sort it out. And since we are speaking of two actors that are so asymmetrical, the Israelis, ladies and gentlemen, were constantly tempted to dictate conditions on us, and we were uncomfortable negotiating in a very unfavorable balance of power. Hence, the third dimension of my triangular, the USA. <coughs> ladies and gentlemen, I've been converted in conflict resolution to what I call the De Gaulle approach. And I'm known, ladies and gentlemen, to be a Francophile, and I'm a great fan of Le General De Gaulle, even though I was advised when we crossed the pond not to speak of my pro-French affinities. I am today in front of a very enlightened segment of American public opinion, so I can be glasnostically transparent with you. De Gaulle, after the 67 war, called for what he called la concertation a quatre, meaning the coordination of the major four powers, who were supposed, according to his idea, to represent the international community and tell the local actors what the world expects from them. Unfortunately, this idea of the goal never really took off the ground. Why? Because America was not unhappy with the Israeli military victory. It compensated the humiliations of Vietnam. The Soviet Union, sir, 
was narrow-minded like it frequently could be and preferred the bipolar constellation and the bipolar relationship and didn't see why they should give equal status to lesser countries like England and France. England was unenthusiastic simply because the idea was French to begin with. And ladies and gentlemen, since then, instead of permanent peace, we are having a durable peace process, which is the symptom of its failure. Ladies and gentlemen, as I said earlier, clinically speaking, the two parties cannot, through negotiations, find an equitable, acceptable solution, and we need the input, the decisive, vocal, visible input of third parties. I, for one, ladies and gentlemen, I believe that the quartet, which is the diplomatic construction of 2002, is the adequate vehicle. And as you know, the quartet for us in the Middle East is made of the U.S., it's made of the European Union, Russia, and the UN to represent everybody else. Now, there is a challenge and a problem today whether the quartet is really a quartet or it's a one-tet. And you're not without knowing that Europe is increasingly uncomfortable, and President Putin, some six weeks ago, ventilated his annoyance because of American domination of the workings of that quartet. The quartet, in my opinion, should be an authentic real quartet, and it is an adequate channel for conflict resolution. I'm not extremely satisfied with American foreign policy in the Middle East. America has waged a couple of wars that are controversial. We invite America to wage peace on us, and believe you me, we'll be the consenting victims. And I, for one, believe that what we are seeing deployed in front of our eyes these days is what I call static diplomacy, even though there is a lot of agitation. It is static and not aesthetic diplomacy. And I've always was intrigued about the reasons behind the self-inflicted impotence of the only remaining superpower in the Middle East. But let me speak of the future. I, for one, believe that today we live in a unipolar, monopolar world. And in a monopolar, unipolar world, we, I don't believe that non-alignment is still a valid option for us in the third world. But in a unipolar world, I believe that non-alignment should be what characterizes American foreign policy. And this for two reasons. One, if in a unipolar world, the major power chooses to align itself on one belligerent party in a regional conflict, not only does that player antagonize all the other participants in that regional crisis. Not only does it antagonize, offend, and alienate all the other players in that regional conflict, but it also antagonizes and offends and alienates and ghettoizes a component of your own national social fabric. Now, my wife knows how a fan I am of American society. I think American society is fascinating, I believe you are a nation of nations. I believe you are the world on miniature. Every possible country, continent, culture, civilization is represented within your ranks. And I believe because of American alignment on the Israeli preference for the last 60 years, it must not have been easy to be a Palestinian American, and there are 400,000 at least of those. It has not been easy during the last 60 years to be an Arab American, and there are 4 million of those. And it must surely not have been easy for the Muslim Americans, and there are 8 million of those. And I, for one, always advocate, sir, that 
the only remaining superpower should adopt a policy of non-alignment and even-handedness. I personally believe that what was a blocking factor towards this desirable non-alignment was the pro-Israeli lobby. And let me explain that when I say the pro-Israeli lobby, I'm not speaking of the American Jewish community. I believe the American Jewish community is not monolithic, it's very plural, and I believe 70% 70, 70 of the American Jewish community shares my ideal of a two-state solution, even higher than the American national average, by the way. But when I speak of the pro-Israeli lobby, I'm thinking of APAC, that organized institution, which is in alliance with Christian evangelicals. And let me tell you, as a Palestinian Christian, I always say that whenever I hear Pat Robertson, there is a need to defend the innocence of God. <laughs> that school of thought has transformed God into a real estate agent. That school of thought, by aligning itself on the maximalist Israeli preference, would like to thus accelerate the return of the Messiah. I, for one, sir, I was brought up to believe that Jesus has never left us. His role model, his message is there with us. And anyway, I don't believe he needs any human intervention to accelerate his return. He did it once in a very spectacular manner, even though it was the pre-CNN age. And I don't believe that uh, uh, Pat Robertson's choice are going to accelerate that event. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's time for me to start concluding before the bell starts ringing. Even in the gloomiest of moments, and we have lived, believe you me, many a gloomy moment, I've always believed that Palestine will resurrect. And as you know, we in Jerusalem, we have had some previous experience in resurrection. <laughs> and to my many Israeli interlocutors, I often tell them, what is lacking is the political will. And if there was a political will, I believe that a territory that was occupied in six days in 1967 can also be evacuated in six days so that the Israelis can rest on the seventh and we can engage in the fascinating journey of nation building and economic recovery. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your comments. They were strongly put. They were well thought out. And the dash of humor didn't hurt. It's good to see diplomats with a sense of humor. It's the one thing that sometimes when we get into an issue like this one, uh, humor is the first casualty. But not today. Our, uh, our panelists consist of uh, Stan Roden, who for eight years was our district attorney in Santa Barbara. Uh, following that, he went into private practice and has um, become an active spokesperson for human rights in Santa Barbara, and he will be our first speaker. The second speaker will be um, Hilal Elva, who is Distinguished Professor of, of Global and International Studies at UC Santa Barbara, uh, and an expert on one of the issues that most compels the Middle East, that has to do with water. And the final speaker will be uh, Rabbi Arthur Gross Schaefer, uh, who will wrap things up for us, and then we'll take a short break. 
During the break, we're going to move the podium back. We're going to move the tables a little closer so that we can see each other and there will be a, um, a, a dialogue between the, the panelists and, um, and then we'll be taking your questions. So if you, if you haven't thought of questions yet, be thinking of them. And it, Leslie's comment was well taken. As a teacher, I, I tend to read a lot of blue books and a lot of hieroglyphics. It is those, th those questions that are legible that tend to get read, so bear that in mind. And if you will, at this point, uh, please welcome Stan Roden. All right. A little well, diplomatic coaxing. I, I was joking earlier. We had the uh, Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court here, and he was asked about uh, technology at the court, and he said, the court is really up to date, but here's my Palm Pilot. <laughs> so well, I thought I was going to have the same problem here. Anyway, to our uh, esteemed ambassador, Lafitte uh, Sevilla, uh, it's been an honor to know you and to uh, to know your wife, Crystal, and uh, look forward to more of the same, and to our distinguished panelists, uh, Rabbi Arthur Groschafer and Halal Ever, and of course our esteemed moderator, and all of you. First, I want to thank the organizers, and I want to pay tribute to the First Amendment and to our founding fathers. Uh, this was controversial, and um, um, I'm proud. I'm not only proud to be here, I'm proud these people are here. I'm ever so proud that you're here uh, with many, many thanks to Adult Ed and Ann Wiley, uh, to the organizers, Alessi and Anthony that you've heard from earlier, the whole committee that helped bring this together. It took a lot of courage. There was a lot of opposition. Uh, free speech, as I say here, is not just for others. You can't be indifferent when people attempt uh, to curtail it, and difference is probably the greatest sin of all. And so, using the words of Eli Wiesel, silence helps the oppressor or the censor, and never really the victims. And then I wanted to do a, take a trip, trick I should say, from the mediator's page. And this arrow, as you see, can point in one of two directions. And I always start my mediations by telling the party we can spend all day looking in this direction. We can look back. We can evaluate who did what to whom, and I'm not minimalizing it, and I'm not saying it's not important. We can spend a lot of time chewing over ground that perhaps has been chewed over many, many times, and yet fail to recognize that what we're really here to do today is yes, to discuss this, yes, these are issues, but to try and find a path forward. Not to ignore this, but not to let this consume this. And so I'd ask you, if you would, keep that image in mind. A lot of times, just as a, a way to break the ice or get over a tough place uh, in a mediation, I'll hold up the card or do something else that at the time often isn't appreciated, but 
often works. I have three main themes I want to bring to the table, and given the constriction of time, I'm sorry we don't have a lot of time to develop it. But that's weird. There we go. Uh, the first theme is that basically human rights exist. So I'm here as an advocate for human rights. I'm a Jew. I grew up in a Jewish home. I'm an atheist, so I have doubts on doubts on doubts, to borrow the line here. So that's my full disclosure. But I came here today to talk about human rights and to talk about the voices of civilians who are non-combatants uh, who have paid a heavy price, not to diminish the price paid by the combatants, but have paid a heavy price and continue to pay a heavy price uh, in, in this dispute. And I don't narrow this dispute necessarily just to Israel and the Palestinians. Number two, human rights are protected by international law. Uh, those protections are either in treaties, which bind Israel and the Geneva Conventions, which they were signatories to, or the protocols, which they're not signatories to, but many, if not most, of the important elements of both those protocols are binding an international law by what we call the customary law. Number two, human rights are not something that are given by any government or any ruler. Human rights are not bestowed because of where you are, how much money you have, or the color of your skin, or your religion, or whatever. Human rights belong to you from the minute you come into this world until the minute you leave it. And it has, and no one can take them away, no one can bestow them, no one can narrow them. The essence of human rights, as adopted through history, but as synthesized at the end of World War II and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, makes this clear. They are inalienable rights. They cannot be narrowed, they cannot be taken away, and they cannot be denied. Three, and probably, hopefully, the most important thing I have to say is most theorists, theorists would say that conflict resolution and paying attention to human rights violations are contradictory. They run at opposites. In a way, you could think of human rights violations as this. Looking backwards, who did what to whom, how did it happen, who's responsible, who has to pay, and the counter-allegations uh, that always come with that. In a way, conflict resolution attempts to do this. And so most of the theorists and a lot of the writing in the field suggest that the two are not really compatible. I'd like to submit a th another idea that they're directly uh, and indivisibly connected, inextricably connected. And last, peace can never be achieved without justice. They just simply cannot exist without the other. So the thought that someone's going to impose a peace, impose on someone else their values, no matter how well-intentioned, is a myth. So uh, injustice breeds conflict, and destructive conflict gives rise to injustice. Preventing conflict requires more than training in conflict resolution. It requires reducing gross injustices. Such redu reduction requires changes in how various institutions of society, the political, the social, the economic, the educational, familial, and religious, function so that they honor and value human equality, shared community, nonviolence, fallibility, and reciprocity. 
The dispute we're here to talk about today is clearly an intractable conflict. There's no doubt about it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. You're, that's one of the reasons that you're here. It's intractable because it cuts to the core. It has religious, it has social, it has economic, it has political, it has a history that goes back 2,000 years or more. And it, it bears humiliation and frustration and rage and threats and resentments and recriminations and reprisals, uh, which then yield a people into stereotypical thinking. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But as soon as you get locked into that, as soon as you're not willing to look at human rights violations as something distinct and separate from who did what to whom, until you can take off the lens that you bring to the problem and really try to see it for what it is, not to punish but to understand, not to agree but to understand it, to understand it. And so that's why I'm pleased that we're here today. So going to human rights, they're inherent, as I said earlier, they're inalienable, which is, of course, part of our Declaration of Independence. And it is in keeping with both of those things that human rights stay alive because of the rule of law. You cannot protect human rights without the rule of law. And unfortunately, that brings us to the point, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, you cannot impose an enforcement, a prevention, or even an early identification of human right violation problems that won't interfere with state sovereignty unless it's invited. And so one of the strongest tenets of uh, international law is the fact of self-determination and non-intervention by non-parties to the dispute without consent or without invitation. So our treaty-based system, as it applies to this problem, includes the Universal Declaration, which is very broad, but it's, in our view, in many, and when I say our view, the human rights community view, many of the precepts uh, have become binding either through the treaties, the uh, Geneva Conventions, which, as I said, Israel is a party to, or the protocols. And interestingly enough, the PLO was involved, intimately involved with the negotiations of the protocols to the Geneva Conventions in 78 uh, thereabouts, and on subsequent occasions, Chairman Arafat and others have come before the United Nations and agreed that those protocols apply uh, to the Palestinian uh, organization, uh, both the PLO and today the, uh, the Palestinian Authority. Um, I'll skip over this quickly, but in armed conflict, there are rules. There are rules called the laws of war that govern the conflict between combatants on the one hand and non-combatants on the other. And uh, what we see all too often is that in the crosshairs of the destruction that has occurred through this conflict, it is the non-combatants, it is the civilians, it is the women, it is the non-reservists, it is the reservists who are not on military duty, and most importantly, it's the youth of uh, both societies that have paid an extremely heavy price. And there's a, a, a very extraordinary study uh, 
uh, uh, polling and taking uh, preference differentials of value towards violence and uh, negotiation of dispute resolution between the youth in Israel and the youth in the Palestinian authorities in the West Bank and Gaza at the time, and uh, comparing that on a comparable basis to the uh, European Union, and it was frightening to find that be the impact of what has occurred, occurred and occurs daily has a, a devastating effect on the outlook and prospects for ever even conceiving within your reality that in fact there might be peace. So under the Geneva Convention, civilians in time of war are entitled to protection and civilians may not be targeted. And let's talk about how that happens sometimes. Lots of these things are well documented. Uh, there are reports available at humanrightswatch.org that detail these kinds of issues on both sides. And so I'm not asking you, and I'm not here to take sides here, I'm just asking you to take those lenses off you may have come here with and just put yourself in the position of a human rights activist on behalf of these non-combatant civilians. Uh, soldiers have used civilians and sometimes young people under the age of 13 or 14 as shields. So going house to house using somebody as a shield in order to do a search and uh, uh, with armed persons believed to be inside. There are rocket attacks which have occurred regularly in the past and may occur in the future that are sent, the Qassam rockets that are sent that don't differentiate between military targets and not military targets. There, are su there have been, as you know, suicide bombings, which are indiscriminate and are designed to spread terror through killing civilians. These are, all of them, gross violations, grave violations of human rights law, both humanitarian law in the armed conflict sense and the law of human rights. The use of children as soldiers or the use of children, as I said earlier, as shields are clearly outlawed by international law. Targeting executions and liquidations of people believed to have violated the rules and laws or been guilty of this and that are clearly, in the way in which they're carried out, illegal under international law. Collective punishments, the destruction of villages, the destruction of blocks, the destructions of residences, of orchards, and the like as a way of getting even and retaliating for yesterday's uh, harm and destruction. And there, of course, there's no end to that are all illegal under international law. And walls, if built strictly as a way of creating economic chaos, preventing people from moving from one end to the other, are illegal under international law. So I want to skip over this and talk if I've got how many minutes? Two minutes. All right. There can never be, and this is the main point I want to make, there can never be, in my view, a lasting peace without full awareness of the human rights issues. So as soon as you get defensive and say, I don't want to talk about that, or it's justified, or I'm retaliating, or on and on and on and on, as soon as you get into that loop, in my view, there will not be a lasting peace in this area. You have to get out of that loop and understand that human rights protection provides a forum by which injustice can be prevented going forward and by which injustice can be resolved going, looking backwards or reconciled. So you have to have an awareness of injustice. 
you have to have negotiations that offer a process to address those injustices. And now coming back to the point uh, that I mentioned earlier, you have to have an articulation, a system through which these injustices, the ones looking back, the ones looking this way, can be addressed. And until that happens, intractable conflict, such as the one we're dealing with, uh, has little chance for success. Closing, I promise. Uh, Amos Oz says, encapsulates what I'm saying. He's an author, he's an Israeli, he's a peace advocate, he's written widely and talked widely on these subjects. Basically, his point is, in a Shakespearean play, there's injustice all over the place. There's tragedy, and the way it's resolved at the end of the play is everyone's dead. He points out that in the Chekhovian uh, uh, tragedy, it ends, everyone's disappointed, everyone's disillusioned, everyone's embittered, everyone's heartbroken, but they're alive. So here's a theme I send out. If we don't stop somewhere, if we don't accept an unhappy compromise, unhappy for both sides, if we don't learn how to unhappily coexist, if we don't contain our burned sense of injustice, we end up in a doomed state. And hopefully we can help uh, find a light out of this tunnel today. Thank you. I don't want to spend too much time in my uh, technical inability to show you. At least I can give uh, enough knowledge about water. I just wanted to show you uh, the map because map is very important. Uh, you visualize what we are talking about and how, uh, how in a small land and dealing with the small water, water shortages and two people at least in the uh, same area. Uh, I'm very proud to be here together with very distinguished speakers. Uh, despite this apartheid, I don't know why you did like this. Uh, maybe there, there, was, there must be a reason lawyers are here. And, uh, <laughs> we'll, we will cure the divide. Yeah, good. Um, well, uh, <coughs> the water problem in the Middle East is a very important problem. It's not only belong to Israel and a Palestinian conflict. It's, as you know very well, Middle East is one of the most uh, water-scarce uh, uh, region in the world and also a very drought climate. Because of this reason, there are several water problems that we know in the Middle East region, but today we are focusing on the Palestinian-Israeli water sharing problems because many times it never comes to the conversation or to the issues between these two peoples uh, they generally taking kind of uh, not very seriously, but I think it is extremely serious if you look at the general uh, conflicts that started, let's say, 1967. I'm not going uh, uh, 1948, but since 1967 to today, uh, there is a gradual development that 
uh, not only water, uh, not only land, but also connected with water resources. That's why let's look at a little bit what we are talking about. It. What are the water resources in Israel and Palestine? There is one river, there, there are two major water resources we're talking about here. The surface water, which is the Jordan Basin, mainly the Jordan and Yarmouk rivers. Uh, these uh, rivers uh, sh shared by Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, and Palestinians. And groundwater resources from the mountain aquifer that extend from the West Bank into Israel. And the largest water resources of Israel, Palestine, and Jordan is the Jordan River. But this doesn't mean that Jordan River is big. Despite the fact that the river is one of the smallest in the region, which is 200 miles and very small, uh, there are serious kind of uh, group of countries trying to share it. And Syria and Jordan established a serious dam on the Yarmouk River to obtain maximum profit from every drop of water which they are upstream. When it comes to dam, Israel treats uh, almost virtually no water for Israel. Palestinians uh, cannot access anyway. Israel treats Lake Galilee as a reservoir to convey drinking plain and the farms in the Neg Negev district. I should, the map is important. Okay, then you should look at the map there. Uh, anyway, uh, Lebanon by virtue uh, a relatively wet climate. First of all, we are talking about these international rivers because not only Israel and Palestine, but other regional states also should share. Well, this map is nothing to do with water. <laughs> Sorry, this is not your fault. But, but anyway, uh, anyway, this uh, the river uh, is very small and international, and there is only one agreement in 1992 between uh, Jordan and Israel. But of course, uh, this excludes uh, Lebanon also and Syria. The Syria has another water resources on the north. But on the south, they have also a problem, but they can't get too much anyway. Uh, this is one issue that is a little bit outside from Israeli-Palestinian problem. Uh, number one, it's not enough water. Number two, Palestinians cannot access anyway. Let's come right now mountain aquifers, which creates more <laughs> problem between these two people. Uh, it's the most legally and politically controversial shared groundwater in the region. Uh, lies mainly under occupied Palest Palestinian terrain. It has an underground geological structure with a capacity to store potable water, and groundwater percolates into Israel across the Palestinian-Israeli Green Line, which means Green Line literally cut this aquifers, and the aquifers underground is very fluid. Water is fluid, of course. goes from one place to another. That's why it's hardly uh, visible and very, very difficult to control from one parties if you don't have enough technical expert, uh, expertise. 
And uh, among these three, the western aquifers, eastern aquifers, and the northern, approximately 40% of the groundwater, or one quarter of its total high-quality renewable freshwater supply, upon which Israel depends, originates in the Palestinian territories. This is the major problem, which means Palestinians are sitting in this region, in this area, that waters there, and the Israelis are also trying to share this uh, major water resources. And uh, this aquifer is on both sides of the green line, as I said, so its water would appear to be international, although Israel, West Bank settlers, and the Palestinians each make exclusive claims to use and control. Drilling to pump the water to the surface may be done only in places of water accumulation, and these are not to be found everywhere on the West Bank. Places of water accumulation lie close to the Green Line, enabling drilling to be done on either side of this dividing line between these two peoples. The Gaza Strip is miserable. He is not physically attached to the West Bank, or to the Jordan Basin, but is an integral part of the Palestine entity and is far from being self-sufficient in water. The aquifer system under Gaza does not provide water suitable for human consumption, although it's currently relied upon to supply 80% of Gaza's drinking water, which is highly dangerous for human health. Of course, recently there was a more problem in 2006 uh, the war, the summer war, which is strangely named Operation Summer Rain, uh, that uh, they, it's been bombed by Israeli military uh, and the uh, power plant has been destroyed, which is 60% of the Gaza's electricity is coming from there because of the reason there is no purification system anymore in Gaza, and the health uh, uh, problems are significantly important. This is very recent. Of course, these things are going on last years and uh, many, many years in, in a different international legal setting. Then I'm going to come a little bit. In, in the aftermath of the Six Days War of 1967, the general hydropolitical map of the Middle East changed dramatically. Israel gained important water resources by acquiring two of the three Jordan River headwaters, riparian access to the entire river, and currently supply one-third of Israel's fresh water, uh, and control over the recharge zones of the mountain aquifers that currently supply one-third of Israel's fr fresh water. By occupying in the Syrian Golan Heights, Israel also controls the Banias tributary. After the 1980 invasion of Lebanon, Israel maintained effective control over the remaining Haspani tributary as well as the strategic Litani River. When Israel withdrew from almost all of southern Lebanon in 1999, it also lost control over these waters, which means some of them they lost when they uh, uh, returned uh, uh, from Lebanon which means 1967 war created significant kind of water resources for Israel in, in uh, favor of Israel. 
If you look at the water consumption profile, there is another problem here. First of all, water is very scarce a commodity for Israelis and the Palestinians. But the consumption profile creates more serious problem than only scarcity. The Israeli-Palestinian water conflict can be better understood if we compare figures concerning the water consumption of both peoples. In the Israeli National Water Policy Plan, the Israeli government estimates an average per capita consumption of 35 cubic meters for a Palestinian on the West Bank and 321 cubic meters for, for Israelis in Israel and the settlements. According to standards of the WHO, people with an average, which means World Health Organization, People with an average per capita consumption less than 500 cubic meters live in a condition of severe water stress. If we look at two parties are living under the severe water stress, but Israel gets 321 and Palestinians get only 35. That's a serious uh, problem or let's say uh, asymmetrical water use. And if the, another problem also using the water, the Palestinians and some of the Israelis are heavily use water for agricultural purposes. Agricultural purposes using water is extremely problematic in especially water scarcity places because 78%, 80% of the water goes to agriculture. Actually, if they were using more, uh, let's say logically, instead of using the agricultural activities, uh, household or more serious human uh, consumption, would they have been much better uh, dealt, but neither Israel, Palestinians don't have alternative, but Israel also making clear that agriculture is one of the major uh, policy in the country, surviving of the country, that's why they don't want to change the policy. It's a very touchy issue in Israel uh, talking about uh, why we, don't, we do use too much in agricultural activities. Of course, the lifestyles are very different between Israelis and Palestinians. Israelis' lifestyles are much more higher. They are trying to make uh, Western lifestyles. If you look at the water reports about the Israeli state, you always see this. We have to maintain Western style living, which means swimming pools, much more loans, all kind of things also. In Israel, there is another problem. Settlers are getting more and more water than even Israelis. That's why there are serious problems interlocked together. Uh, agricultural use, Western life lifestyle, settlements get more. What about the payment? Payments are also extremely unequal. Uh, Palestinians may be five, six times paying more than the Israelis what they get. But many of them, anyway, I'm not talking about refugee camps. Refugee camps, you don't even have a water at home. You have to go and get water from the uh, water tanks that they, they come with mobile tracks. I'm talking about regular living uh, conditions, which is extremely uh, unequal between these two people. And I have how many minutes? 
five? It's just about out. Just about out. Uh, the problem, if it is just about out, I'm not talking about international law. I'm supposed to talk about international law. I think there is too long way to go talk about international water laws. How can we solve this problem, Palestinians and Israelis? Because in this, at this moment, when the war is going on in the territories, we cannot talk about how we share water resources between Israelis and Palestinians uh, implementing international water, resource, uh, in water principles. First of all, Palestine has a complete sovereignty in order to make this point. Of course, you will say during the Oslo Agreement, they did it. Yes, 95 in Oslo Agreement, there was a water interim annex that they talk about, but they never realize it. They never went one step up because uh, Palestine never gets this kind of international recognition that they can really implement international water resources. There are lots of details on this issue and also a deliberate uh, a cutting of the waters and wall is one of the important things. Before saying this, I'm not going out. The water, uh, uh, sorry, wall, the Palestine wall, or let's say apartheid, sometimes they call water wall because the wall completely connected with the water resources to exclude Palestinians' aquifer areas from the Israeli part, then they lose also extra resources through the newly established world, among the other things. Thank you. First of all, I want to thank the organizers for this program. You should know, by the way, for me, it was very hard to be here. Not because of the ambassador. I'm actually I'm very honored because this is on our Sabbath. And actually, I never do these programs. Matter of fact, I'm a professor. I never go to graduations on Saturday. That's a blessing in some ways. <laughs> but I want to emphasize how important this is. The only exception in our tradition for doing this is Bekuach Nefesh, to save a life. My hope is these types of dialogues are critical to the savings of lives, of my children, of your children. So I want to ask a hard question. I'd like you to be honest, to really be honest. Who here is primarily pro-Israel? Would you please raise your hand? Okay. Who here is primarily pro-Palestinian? Who here is primarily pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli? That's what I'd like to see because I need to tell you that the world we're living in and the world I've been involved in at the university at Loyola Marymount or other places is very often controlled by what view you have. It's a world of I want to see a view and I will only look at sources that support that view. And any other source I'm going to try and manipulate the other way. It's a world that we can model. When I do my research I can look at only sources that support me. I can be honest with my research and try and cite all sources. 
I can try and demonize the other side and use phrases like apartheid or the Jew's Jew, whatever these types of phrases are, that are beautiful sound bites. But we know that they are inflammatory. We know that they are not accurate fully, and we know they hurt. And they don't help us have a dialogue that lets us move forward. I want to model here a different type of reality, one of honesty, and really looking at each other and the pain of each other. So the first thing is to really listen to each other very, very carefully. I'm going to talk about a friend of mine who is basically a very, very, very good Israeli soldier. Matter of fact, he is in special forces. Matter of fact, his job was to just lay down and blend in with the land and watch for terrorists. And he was assigned to the Gaza Strip just to watch a particular area because 50% of most of the suicide bombers and terrorist attacks come from the Gaza area. And he sat there day after day, very hardened soldier. But then he noticed something. The Palestinians that he was watching, going back and forth, were wearing the same clothing. And that clothing was tattered. And his heart broke. He realized the poverty of those people. And he was saddened that that was the reality and that it shouldn't be. We have to allow our hearts to be broken for both sides, not just say it's one side's fault. Because one of my concerns is normally that when I have these types of programs, presentations, how bad Israel is, what they should be doing. They're the strong ones. They have the tanks. They have this. They should do this. They should do that. And the answer is partially yes, that's true. But what about the Palestinians? Everyone has power. Everyone has power to act. And one of the problems with the Oslo Accords, which by the way did include an attempt to work with, with water, and according to my friend who's now the president of Beirut, Beirut University, clearly not a Jew, clearly not part of APAC. He said that the Oslo Accords water agreement was actually pretty good and could actually work and was a good foundation. That was his book. And so we have different viewpoints, but I want to have all viewpoints put together so we can really move forward. I want to also talk about what some of the aspects are. For instance, as Stan was pointing out, each side has their own reality where they want to go to. We need to hear each other's reality. And I want to talk just for a second, not about truth, because that we can always argue about, but perceptions. Why is Israel so concerned about this wall? Or why is Israel so concerned about the security? How bad is it? And let me use an example. There's a student I'm working with who got an email which simply said, I will kill you. If you got such an email, how would you react? Would you be frightened? Would you be scared? We took it to the LAPD. LAPD said, well, it may have come from this person, but because it's not in writing, it's from an email, we can't do anything. This person was very much afraid. We did all sorts of things trying to protect that person, but it's a very scary type of reality. Whether it's true or not, we don't really know. But can you take a risk when your life is at stake? I think the answer is no. 
So let me talk about Israel's perception just for a second, where it's coming from, because you need to know where they're coming from, where the Palestinians are coming from, and how we can maybe get out of this quagmire. How many, let me do this way, how many terrorist attacks, I know we have to define this stuff, let's say it's uh, missiles or uh, gunfire or suicide bombers, how many, how many terrorist attacks do you think Israel has documented since 2000 to 2006? So it's six years. What's your guess? How many? What would be your guess? How many? 800. How many? 2,000. 2,000. The number that Israel has between 25,000 to 27,000. That's like an outrageous number, doesn't it? A friend of mine works for the Jerusalem Post, and she has a beeper. Every time there's an attempted terrorist attack, she gets a beep because she has to go cover it, right? We have dinner with her. Normally, the beeper goes off several times. I do believe that's an accurate number. It's not just a minor number. So if you have those things happening on a regular basis, how high is your fear? It's pretty high. When you have a ceasefire back in November, and then you have over 300 missiles fired at you, it doesn't feel very comfortable. There's a real fear there. A lot of us hate that blasted wall. By the way, just curious. Of the wall, the partition wall, how much is concrete versus how much is, is wire? What do you think? All the newspapers always show the concrete, the huge wall, concrete, terrible, ugly. How much of it is concrete? What'd you guess? Third, a third of it? Third of it? Ten percent? Five percent. Actually, it's three percent. The rest is chain link fence. Not nice. Why the concrete anyways? To stop people from shooting directly into cars. Now, the Israelis that I know, and I know right wings, left wings, middle of the bird, all the different wings, and they argue. Boy, do they argue. Matter of fact, I'm part of a civil rights group called Rabbis for Human Rights. Part of our group stands in front of the bulldozers. I'm not happy with a lot of Israeli policies, but I get to argue about them and to fight about them. And by the way, are Palestinians able to bring law cases and get that wall changed? It's happened now three times. Three cases have been brought. The wall has been changed in direction three times. Am I still happy about it? No. I've actually gone to visit a Palestinian family where the wall went through their home versus their field. I was furious. So we're furious at those things. But the question that we have is, what therefore is the mindset of the Israeli? Is it a comfortable mindset or a dangerous and scary mindset? They're afraid. And then add two more things. When I was in Israel a year and a half ago, the big debate was, should we give back Gaza or not give back Gaza? Now, because I'm a good liberal, what do you think my position was? You've got to give back. You've got to try. You've got to make it work. So I went to Gaza to visit it. The people there, the settlers said to me, no, no, don't give it back. I said, I think you're wrong. <laughs> Luckily, I got out of there pretty quickly. But we disagreed. And Israeli soldiers had to pull people out to give back Gaza. And do you know that there was a very, very large very, very large industry there of producing flowers. And many American Jews, including myself, many others, raised money to put that in pristine shape. When it was given back, there was an economic venture that could raise millions of dollars. 
How long do you think it took to be dismantled and destroyed? Basically a day, day and a half. So for the Israeli mindset is, we do these things that we think are good. Now again, there's different points of view here. But what happens when we give back land, what do we get in return? What do we get, what do all of Israelis think they got in return? More missiles, less things. We leave, according to the Israelis, we leave Lebanon. Hezbollah says, well, that's not good enough. Our speaker said they only left partially of Lebanon, almost all of Lebanon. The UN concluded, the UN was there to make sure they were all the way out, every inch. So Israel said, they can't complain. They found a way. Now the question is, with that mindset, there's a sense of fear, a real sense of fear. But what do you do with that? What's happening is because of 2000 and 2001, the sense of euphoria that we almost came to a conclusion. Israelis were planning joint ventures with Palestinians, a real excitement of hope. And then, well, for whatever reason, the Oslo Accords didn't go through a sense of depression, a sense now of they're resigned, that we're stuck. So now, what do we do? How do we get out of it? And that's the real question for today. And I want to talk about some hope and where we need to move. Number one, there are a lot of non-governmental agencies that work together. We think that the Israelis and Palestinians aren't talking. Not true. There are a lot of groups that are talking. Some of the groups I don't want to be a member of because one of them is called Parents Circle. To be a member of that group, you have to have a son or a daughter who died in Israel. But it's Palestinians and Israelis talking together about this is crazy. How do we work together? There are actual conference of people, Palestinians, Israelis, coming together to try and talk. We need to support those efforts because they really care a lot. We also have to stop the hatred that keeps going on. For instance, education is not a minor thing. I do have a big fear that now Hamas appears to be in charge of education. Major fear for there. Because I have seen school textbooks that teach about mathematics in terms of killing Israeli soldiers, Jewish kids. My Arabic is not great, but it has translated. I think it was accurate, but it scares the heck out of me. A lot of the cartoons that are still in that world still depict Jews, big nose, all those types of things. That scares me. The suicide bombers and the glorification, that scares me. I want moderates to say, no, that's against our morality, against human rights. Just as, just as, a few weeks ago, an Israeli soldier used a Palestinian as a shield. There was outrage in Israel. That soldier was taken and is being processed and being persecuted. And Israel reaffirmed the Supreme Court decision. You cannot use civilians as shields. I want that type of outrage to come from Israel and to come from Palestinians. We need to allow the moderates to speak a lot more. So my goal is I'm worried about the suggestion of maybe an outside force that maybe does not have trust. Israel doesn't trust the UN. In 1967, when Nasser said, I'm going to attack Israel, and there's a UN peacekeeping group, and Nasser said, UN peacekeeping group, get out. And they said, okay. As uh, Abi Ibn said, when you have an umbrella, you don't fold it up when it's about to rain. You keep it there. They don't trust the UN for those reasons, amongst others. Russia, not exactly a trustful ally, as they've been supporting and did support Arabs for a long time in the wars against Israel in 67, 73. So I'm worried about that quartet concept. But to have the UN, the US come in and say, we've got to work together, yes, we, have, we, sh we need to push 
our country get much more involved. How much more time before you ring the bell? I'm out? Okay, so I'm going to end with the following very quick story. There's a man who's lost in the forest and he can't find a way out. And he sees somebody else. And he says, thank God, which is the way out? And the guy goes, I don't know, but it's not that way. The way we've been doing with blame and everything else and changing all things and sound bites and making all these types of statements, enough. The reality is the Israelis and Palestinians will live together. There needs to be a two-state solution. We need to say how to make it work. Oslo was really close. Tebo was really close. We need to find another way out through these types of dialogues. Thank you very much. Our purpose here today is to be enlightened from the perspectives of four different speakers. And I, uh, I, I feel that we're making, we're making headway. Uh, I would, uh, uh, we have a short period of time before we take a break for some dialogue between the speakers. And if I could wave a magic wand, I would remove this and move this out, but I don't think I can. So I think what we'll do is <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll do it. We'll ask do it. you to uh, speak from, from your tables. And there are active microphones there. And would you, would you like to be first to respond? Sure. Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I, I listened with great interest to the speeches of our three distinguished colleagues. And to Stan Roden, I'd like to say that I fully share his uh, universalistic approach. And I believe we all would be uh, well advised to abandon uh, ethnocentric, tri tri tribalistic approaches. Uh, I emphasize and I fully agree with his, uh, the importance he allocated to international law, the observance of the rule of law. And I believe that what has happened during the last 40 years of occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, and I want you to bear in mind that when we say an endless 40-year occupation, it means that 80% of my society has known nothing else but occupation, 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 from birth to death, from womb to tomb. Uh, the problem we have encountered is that Israel is the only one country that does not recognize the applicability of the Fourth Geneva Conventions. And let me explain. The Fourth Geneva Conventions, among other things, are supposed to regulate the behavior of an occupying authority. And international law is extremely explicit and totally unequivocal that an occupying authority is not entitled either to change the physical aspect of an occupied territory nor to change its demographic composition. Well, ladies and gentlemen, and here I'm not demonizing anybody when I say that Israel violated both aspects of that Fourth Geneva Convention. They have changed the physical aspect of uh, the occupied territories in defiance of international law and the international will, and they have surely changed the composition, the demographic composition of the uh, occupied territory. Today, the volume and the number of the illegal settlers in the West Bank is close to half a million, 500,000, if you include the way you ought to, the illegal settlements in and around East Jerusalem, which is part of the occupied territory, because the international community, including the American administration, never recognized the Israeli annexation of expanded East Jerusalem. And to tell you frankly, many of those settlers uh, 
Rabin once said that he wouldn't like to have them as his neighbors. Many of those settlers have created a god after their own image. They expropriate Palestinian land, and when they are asked what's your title, uh, title of property, they produce the Bible as a title of property. 500,000 illegal settlers. So I agree with you, sir. International law, universal principles, the highest possible, should be applied. I listened to our distinguished Turkish professor, expert on water, with great attention. Yes, we, the Palestinians, ended up with having very little of the water hydraulic resources that are ours. Israel is known to have uh, diverged the Jordan River to irrigate the western part of mandatory Palestine of Israel, the Negev Desert, and it's easy to make the desert bloom if you take everybody else's water. And uh, in the West Bank, the aquifer in our territory is being pumped to service Israelis or the Israeli settlement whose consumption is 10 times our individual consumption. And the Jordan River, by the way, and there was a Johnston American study in 1955 about what should be the partition, repartition allocation of water. We, the Palestinians, have not anymore one single drop of that Jordan River, which was diverted towards the south of Israel, but now, from the Tiberias Lake down to the Dead Sea, uh, there is only the sewerage of the illegal settlements in the Jordan Valley that are feeding what remains of that river. And this is why, by the way, the Dead Sea is evaporating, and if it continues, it will go into historical oblivion with enormous ecological damage. So we have been deprived totally, unless we renegotiate in the near future water rights, we have been totally deprived of our rights. Now, sir, believe you me, you said that I was guilty of demonization. I believe I was looking at the arrow of our friend in the direction of future-oriented. You are the one who brought us backwards. Sir, I want you always to remember that in this bilateral relationship, it's Israel that occupies Palestine, not Palestine that occupies Israel. My society has been diasporized forcibly for the last 60 years, and we have been living stateless since then, and 40 years of occupation in the West Bank and Gaza. Number two, sir, you mentioned the wall, and you asked about percentages. First of all, let me tell you something. It's not 3% concrete wall. It's much higher. I don't have the figure. But around Ramallah, in Jerusalem, and is caging in Bethlehem, it's the wall, wall, wall. But it's not important whether it's a wall, concrete, or a fence. It is snaking deep into Palestinian territory, the way Bush once said, it's snaking deep into Palestinian territory. And even when it is a fence, it's on expropriated land uh, taken away from Palestinians. And let me tell you, sir, had the Israelis decided for their security concerns to put the wall on the international border of 67, nobody would have had anything to say. That's their sovereign choice. Maybe it's not the wisest. The Pope said, you don't make peace with wars, you make it with bridges. But that would have been their sovereign decision. But the wall, the way it is sneaking deep into our Palestinian territory, what remains of our Palestinian territory, is separating Palestinians from Palestinians. It has mutilated our East Jerusalem. It's separated, separating our urban centers from the villages that are in their orbit. It's separating villages from their farm land, the farming land from the water well, etc., etc., and deliberately so, sir, because as I told you, the strategy is how to acquire as much of 
geography as possible with as little of demography as possible. Sir, the Israelis speak of terrorism as though it's a daily occurrence, because why we, the Palestinians, we are inherently violent. You mentioned, uh, and you tested our audience, that there were 25,000 terrorist operations that the Israelis uh, have uh, had to face. Sir, I consider in that conflict, and you have to believe me on that, that every victim is one victim too many, whoever the perpetrator, whoever the origin of the victim. But let me tell you, there have been less than 1,000 Israeli uh, casualties in this six-year confrontation. I don't believe there were 25,000 Palestinian terrorist uh, operations. Let me tell you, sir. In 2006, there was only one suicide bombing. I have, I have, by the way, Mr. Moderator, condemned every Palestinian suicide bombing. But in 2006, there was only one. And up to today, in 2007, there, are, there was only one. And I have condemned them both. Israelis and their supporters give the impression that we are inherently violent, daily committing more than one suicide bombing. That's the wrong perception. And let me tell you, sir, the fact that there was only one was not because of the successes of Israeli repression against my society or because of the wall. Believe you me, all those security checkpoints, I will tell you how to bypass each one of them. I did it, by the way, peacefully. And uh, it was the result, sir, of the internal Palestinian dialogue two years ago that resulted in our choice of a unilateral Palestinian ceasefire, which we have all observed with few exceptions. So misreading the reason behind the reduction of violence will bring you to take wrong decisions and make wrong decisions. The reduction in violence was the result of a voluntary volition of us Palestinians, not the result of the successful Israeli repression of my society. Number two, sir, I believe, and I've told many Israeli interlocutors, I have listened with great respect, ma'am, please, and you reciprocate. Uh, I have told my many Israeli uh, interlocutors, I told them, whoever does not condemn Israeli occupation, repeated Israeli military incursions, the indiscriminate uh, Israeli bombardment of civilian Palestinian neighborhoods, targeted and untargeted killings, is not morally qualified to have a respectable opinion on suicide bombings. I believe every victim is a victim too many, and I believe that my society, our victims do also count, our tears do also count. For example, today, sir, I'm sure that within your community, you are worried about the one Israeli soldier that was captured in Gaza. I share that worry. But I want you also to share our worry about the over 10,000 Palestinian political prisoners. 10,000. And we are only a society of 3.8 million. When I say that we have 10,000 Palestinian political prisoners, it means that every city, village, refugee camp, extended family has at least one behind Israeli bars. I have always said to the Israelis, please release them en masse to create a positive psychological shock. I believe that more than 9,000 of those 10,000 were never involved in any violent activity, legitimate or illegitimate. Our history confirms that very, very, very rarely a released prisoner engaged in violent activity for a variety of reasons. One, they mature in prison, they age in prison, they have had their life and their studies or their life and family life interrupted when they want to quickly resume it, or they never started it to begin with, so they would like to start it and live it. So history teaches us that very few 
Palestinian political prisoners freed, re-engaged in violent confrontation because of the variety of reasons. And let me tell you, sir, I personally believe that a peace process is a process of reconciliation. Now, Israelis invoke, oh, we cannot liberate those who have Jewish blood on their hands. Rabbi, I know some Jews don't like me telling them that, but Yuri Avneri wrote it in an article of his, and he's a very distinguished peacemaker in Israel. If I were to apply the same rules of those who have Palestinian blood on their hands, I will hardly find an Israeli to talk to, sir. I will hardly find an Israeli to talk to. And they, don't tell me they did it while they were serving in the army, receiving instructions and orders. The fact is that we have had 100 killed on our side for everyone killed on the other side. So I'm sorry, sir, if I had to repoint the arrow. In my initial expose, I spoke only of the future and appealed only to the international community to play the positive, constructive role needed because local parties were incapable of achieving the acceptable peace. I did not speak of the UN, whom I know Israel distrusts. Israel only implemented one UN resolution, which was the partition plan, and got beyond it by exceeding on the territorial partition, and all other UN resolutions were violated and ignored. No, I spoke of the USA, which I believe is trusted since it has a strategic partnership between. And I'm the one who started the expose by saying I'm not inviting America to sacrifice its traditional friend Israel. All I'm doing is offering an additional one Palestine. And I believe the Americans have a duty to play the positive, equidistant, even-handed, non-aligned role. I believe that today, sir, there is a body of experts in this country who know that what has poisoned international relations throughout the past years was the unresolved nature of the Palestinian problem. What has put America on a collision course with much of the Arab world, the Muslim world, was the perception, perceptions are important, the perception of American complacency, if not complicity, with Israeli territorial appetite. And let me tell you, sir, in Israel, there is a vibrant debate about projections into the future. It's here that that debate is not permitted, and it was alluded here in front of us that inviting me for half a session was already very problematic. Let me tell you, in Israel there is a debate whether it's wise to keep the hilltops of the West Bank. But let me ask you, what is America's interest in Israel keeping the hilltops of the West Bank? None, especially if that factor is torpedoing the chances of a credible diplomatic avenue. If Sir, I'm, if I'm I am might. ending with one sentence. Sir, I have always, I have always condemned, yeah, I have always condemned, uh, I have always condemned violence. I, I know, I, I'm known in my society to be in favor of converting the Palestinian national movement towards collective popular non-violence. But let me tell you, having condemned every suicide bombing, serious analysts will tell you that the obstacle to peacemaking was not terrorism, but territory, territorial appetite. The Israelis never were willing to give back territories occupied in 67. And let me tell you, that's my final sentence. My opinion, sir, is that the perpetuation of the conflict today is not due to Arab rejection of Israeli existence, but to Israeli rejection of Arab acceptance. Today, from Morocco to Muscat in Oman, we, the Arabs, are saying to Israel, we are ready to live in peace. We are ready to extend diplomatic recognition, regional acceptance, and normalization of relations. If Israel withdraws out of the 67 expansion, we today are ready to recognize its pre-67 existence.
As your moderator, I need to apologize. I, I neglected to inform our panel that it's better to have, say, short five-minute presentations. Uh, so we'll call that five minutes. Plus. Okay, how, how, do, how, do we, how do we want? Would somebody over here like to respond first? That microphone um, is there. Just a little uh, adding to, uh, I, I try to give one statistic I looked at right now in computer. This is from Reuters. And uh, since 2000, uh, how many Israeli have been killed? This is the Israeli government record, 1,129, and more than 6,500 people injured in Israel. And in Palestine, this is the International Red Cross, 4,406 people killed and 31,239 people injured. It's a quite uh, also asymmetrical, like water sharing. And if you look at the school textbooks, I fully believe uh, the rabbi uh, should uh, the book uh, see the book like that. I did see also school textbook in New Jersey, and it was a Jewish school. It was exactly the same picture. Israeli soldiers were killing Palestinians. I think they should start, stop both parties, not only one. Okay. Thank you. Arthur, would you like to comment? Yes, how much time? <laughs> how much time do I get? Your five minutes will be liberally interpreted. I like liberal. liberal. Um, Honestly, right now I just feel sadness. I, I will respond. I don't know what I want to really say. I can go through various things and say, well, I'll... Okay. Yes, in, six, in 2006 there were very few suicide bombers because there were also many that were caught. I know friends who caught people with belts on them ready to explode. Many. I'll give you just one. There was a Palestinian in Gaza who was going and was taking medical treatment at Peshiva Hospital. One of my friends was the doctor of that patient. She had gone four or five times for major medical treatment. She came from Gaza another time, I believe the sixth time. She was stopped. She was stopped because she had a suicide belt and she was going to explode it in the hospital. That's what she confessed to. Israel's being blamed in some ways for having very good anti-terrorism tech techniques. The wall has stopped a lot of the terrorists. But unfortunately, they've gone from suicide bombing, when you did not mention, to now rockets. How many rockets have been fired since, quote, the ceasefire? And one can say, well, they've only been falling on empty fields. Ever talk to someone who was in England during the Blitz? For them, the most fearful moment was when the engine stopped because they never knew where that missile was going to fall. The fear for those villages, people, is tremendous. But it's also tremendous for the Palestinians. Again, I want to go back and forth. Both sides have enough evil, have enough good. How do we move beyond? I can, I can go through. I mean, I, uh, um, there's no debate in America. Another canard to say APAC is controlling stuff, one of the things that you've mentioned. 
I don't know about you, but my congresswoman, Lois Capps, who a lot of you know, I had her come to my synagogue. She disagrees with some of the Israeli policies. Lois is not afraid to say what she thinks, and most people I know aren't afraid, and the criticism is quite strong, quite strong, and the debate is quite strong as well. I find that unbelievable. The fact that in my synagogue I have brought people who are very pro-Palestinian twice now during my high holidays because I want the dialogue to take place. And I'm not the only one. We do it all the time. There is a vibrant dialogue here that we have and that we have difficulties with. I'm not happy with the wall in many ways. I am upset with it, just as you've stated. But it has stopped 90% of the suicide bombing. When I was in Israel a few years ago, I believe it was 2001, I forget the exact, I think it was 2001, I was there having a very nice uh, dinner, lunch actually, and my two sons wanted pizza. They don't like the good food. They wanted pizza. So they were on their way to a pizza place. Before them, before they arrived at their pizza place called Sabaro's, a young man carrying a guitar case went into that restaurant first and blew out children and women and men. No military. My sons were almost there. And you know what impressed me the most? I went to services that night. There was no one haranguing for revenge. There was no one haranguing to go after them. There was a sadness. You know what song we sang at that service? Od Yavo Shalom Aleinu. Od Yavo Shalom Aleinu. Od Yavo Shalom Aleinu. Ve'akulam. Salam. Aleinu ve'akol ha'olam. Salam. Shalom. It's a song written by Palestinians and Israelis for peace. And that's what we sang that night, as opposed to any type of anything else. That's what we need. You know, there's, um, in my Devar tour today, when I, because at service I gave the, uh, the, uh, the talk, there's one line there from Leviticus 19, which is called the Holiness Code, and it says, love thy neighbor as thyself. What does that mean? Nachmanides lived in Spain during Muslim rule, says that that means that if you really love your neighbor, you have good wishes for them. So my wishes for the Palestinians, that they live in security in their own land, in peace, that their goal is not to go someplace else and try and continue issues, but to find out how do we resolve them and move forward. Same thing with Israel. I want Israel to live in peace and prosperity and ideally have both of them work together economically. That's what my hope is. That's what my view is. I don't want to keep going back and forth on these various things. I do want us to move forward. And for the Palestinians, they've had occupation not just from Israel, from Egypt, from Jordan. They are people who have not known peace or security or been prosperous. And we need to help them do that. I really do believe if the moderates start to speak much stronger, if the terrorism, be it, be it in rockets or be it suicide bombers, whatever it is, does cease, do you know that almost every poll in Israel, virtually every poll, says that they give up land, they give up almost anything to get peace? Almost every poll. The problem is now you have Gaza, where Israel did that, and the result has now been the rockets. So now people are afraid. The liberal voice has been hurt by that. It was an attempt to try and see if that would really work. But we cannot give up. So now, if we can just reduce the terrorism and get back the table, 
the basic accords to Oslo and Taba are close. You know how close that was? According to Dennis Ross, the top negotiator, he felt that if only, if only there was a little bit more time, they could have come to an agreement. I think that can and will happen. I'm an optimist. I'm a rabbi. Thank you. As a, as a mediator, what first steps would you take if you were called to be the chief mediator in the Palestinian-Israeli issue? What are your first steps? Well, I guess I'd do what I always do. I'd get my fee first. <laughs> you, you, need to, um, you need to create a forum where what sounds like ideas that are already mutually acceptable within very finite degrees on very finite issues can take place. That's what's been missing since 99 when the Barack, uh, Arafat, Clinton, Dennis Ross uh, negotiations broke down. And of course the U.S. hasn't helped much by deciding we don't talk to our enemies. That's, 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 a, that's not a formula for negotiation or discussion or conflict resolution or anything else. So. Um, I hear uh, the ambassador saying we need help from the uh, community, and I hear from uh, Rabbi uh, Schaefer Cohn saying, well, wait a minute, there's not a lot of trust of the international community because it's been so heavily negative towards Israel. So the first step is to find power brokers that both sides would agree at least are neutral or believed or perceived to be neutral in order to sit down and have a dialogue. I think once that can occur, I think the elements, as Dershowitz lays out and as the, uh, if you take it from the uh, Palestinian side of the equation, the issues were that close. You've said that three times now, and I'll just repeat not it. more. <laughs> they were this close in 98-99, and it broke down, as I, my reading of, over a few blocks in East Jerusalem. So find honest power brokers, and I'm not suggesting that's us, don't get me wrong, but find honest power brokers that both parties would have confidence in and to get back to the table. Um, because majorities in both countries want peace. Unhappy as it may be, and full of injustice, as we've discussed. But all the polls show that. And they have to then control the extremists, both sides. I would also add an additional piece, too. When I do a mediation, I make sure that each side gets all their points out, all their venom out. That may take a long time, but at least they need to be heard. People, when I find, if they don't get their venom out, their point of view out, it's going to come out in different ways, often passively. So often what I do is, like mediation, I have one side say everything they want to say, and the other side then has to repeat it back until the first side says, you got it. Not that you agree, but you got it. And if they don't get it back, the first one has to go back and do it again. And that may take hours. But when they feel they've been heard, so like, like for instance, on, on the, the, the right of return, I, I, I heard what the ambassador said, and Israelis are going to say, wait a second, no such thing as Palestinians until the 60s when Yasser Arafat says it, and he'll say, no, it's not. Let that stuff come out. And but we have to have that poison come out. And even, I would even have, like to have books where you have two different sides arguing with each other. So at least they can be heard. And get that venom out on both sides so you can see what the other side's thinking. Because I want to know what Palestinians are thinking. I wanna, and I want Palestinians to know what Israelis are thinking. Not to mention the Druze, not to mention everybody else, what they're thinking. And then we look for those power brokers. But I want that, that venom to come out first as well. Or maybe simultaneously, but I want that venom out.
Okay. I'm not sure that who this is referred to. How can religious extremists on both sides be satisfied by any peace plan that doesn't give them what God promised them? Let me do this one. I was at a law conference, an Israeli law conference. My paper was on um, illegal contracts, but one of the issues was, is it under Jewish law acceptable to give back land that under the Bible was given to the Jews, according to that point of view? So the extreme Orthodox would say what? What do you think they would say? No way. God gave it to us as our gift. Okay? And we, the majority, said, what are you, crazy? Shalom bayit. Peace in the community is a higher standard than mere land. Our children are a higher standard than mere land. We, the moderates, need to speak loudly and strongly. One of my, my, my little sayings is, fundamentalists, fundamentally, should never have control over anybody else. They should control themselves, but don't control other people. And... And the moderates have been too quiet on all sides. And matter of fact, I think I gotta tell you, I think that's a role. When when I work with moderates here in town, Hassam and I, we argue a lot. But we can say things to each other and maybe we need some of the moderates outside of Israel to start helping the Israelis and Palestinians to be able to talk better to each other. So if we have more dialogues this one, not these not some emotional ones, not the ones that not some of the comments that drive me crazy. But if we can really talk about that piece, I think we can help. So I think we have a we have a, a obligation here to help those Middle East dialogue better and help formulate their thoughts a lot better. And I think we can do that. Response by anybody? No. Nope. No response. I'm leaving. This is good. Your time to leave. <laughs> I, I'm. I have a question for for our coalition. It's uh, it's time to stop. I, I would like for our panelists to have uh, one final word. And, and my question for them would be, has what has happened here today been encouraging or discouraging? Stand. Um, well, I mean, any time you... Um, come into a public forum like this to talk about extremely complex issues is a good thing. I mean, uh, it, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful exchange. I mean, how often do you, do you look at the 30-second sound bites that pass for news in this country and wonder what the heck is really going on? Well, here you have people who are knowledgeable, who are in Israel all the time, uh, or in the Palestinian uh, uh, territories, or in contact with those people. You're hearing it fresh, and you're hearing it live. So I'm very optimistic about what I heard today. I honestly believe, as, as naive as this probably is, but if you could get the ruling powers into the room, with a respected third party, you might have the Camp David Accords again, and that peace has held for 28 years. So I'm not by nature an optimist. Uh, I am by training an optimist, and uh, so applying my training to what I heard today, I'm, uh, I think the problems, as complex as they are, can be resolved. Number two, and more importantly, uh, 
this conflict has much, is, is just the stone in the pond with uh, waves that extend out all through the region and actually through the world. So there's a lot more writing on this, and I'm not trying to trivialize it by any means, but a lot more writing on this than just the dispute we've been discussing today. And uh, so in, in my view, it's necessary. It's obligatory to do what I said about shining light on the human rights issues, deal with injustice, and get people to the table uh, because that's what the people want who live there. No, I personally feel very encouraged by the event that took place uh, today here in Santa Barbara, and I think we all owe gratitude to Mrs. Leslie for having taken the initiative. I believe that uh, the, uh, the number of uh, distinguished uh, guests who came to the audience is very encouraging. I believe every generation was here. There were a diversity of opinions within the audience, which is another healthy, nobody in my opinion, at least from my knowledge, boycotted that, uh, that session. I was delighted to, one, accept the hospitality of Stan and Phyllis. My wife and I have been staying with them uh, for uh, the, the, yesterday and today. And uh, they didn't know that we knew that they were Jewish and that they were not neither our first Jewish hosts nor were they our few, if, if, if first Jewish guests because we'd love to have you at, in our house. Uh, the rabbi, was me, for me, was another revelation. You know, often it is said that uh, the difference between us Christians and them Jews is that when we'll see the Messiah, we'll have to ask him, is it your first or your second visit? But... <laughs> In addition to that question, I, we might have some other minor issues to solve. But uh, our moderator was a superb choreographer, and to him I have extend my gratitude. Wish you the best. That felt very, very gracious. Um, I have two wristbands on. This one says Shalom. As most of us know, it means peace. That's our hope. In Arabic, it is salam. The second one, interestingly, comes from my university. We've had some anti-African-American graffiti, some anti-Jewish graffiti, some anti-gay graffiti. Generally, LMU is really safe and actually we're really good. This is unusual for us. And so we created these, and they say, LMU, no home for hate. And students, faculty wear this. And we, make, we hope to make someday where in the Middle East there's no home for hate. One quick story. I was once invited to a Palestinian home um, in East Jerusalem, and I went there. I knocked on the door, and no one answered the door. I heard singing, I heard uh, music, I heard people laughing, and the door was not opened. What would you have done? When open the door in the Middle East, you don't do that. No. So when I meditated, came back, 15 minutes later, knocked again. Hello, I'm here. More singing, more laughing. Door was not opened. What would you do now? Cell phones at that time didn't have this while ago. No, what would you do next? I went and meditated some more. Came back 15 minutes more, a bat knock on the door, and the door was opened by a large family. All the cousins had come, many of the relatives had come, all with plates of food, wonderful food, offering it to me. And I said, this is good, but did you hear me knock the first time? 
And the second time? And they said, yes. But you see, you are our first non-Arab ever. And we wanted to honor you by preparing a feast for you. Sometimes we need to make sure we get the signals right, and we have to have patience. And I believe that there will be peace. Amen. Well, I'd like to... Uh, that's a good point on which to end. We, uh, we will all join in that refrain and, uh, and hope for peace and maybe also commit ourselves to working for it. Thank you for, to our panel and thank you all to come. <laughs>